Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me for this webinar. You can find me at Life Over Coffee, where we have conversations for transformation. Our mission statement is that we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. In this particular webinar, I want to talk about a problem that is universal to every human being. It is our struggle with trusting the Lord. In fact, I've titled this Dismantling Self-Reliance and Overcoming Unbelief. The big idea in this webinar is that our most significant problem is self-reliance, also called unbelief. And so it will help you to think of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and unbelief as synonyms. If I use one, I mean all three in this particular webinar. When we choose to rely on ourselves, we are not trusting the Lord. Now, even as Christians, we can have what I call functional atheism, meaning that we believe God as far as salvation is concerned. Salvation is a one-time act where Jesus, where God regenerates us. We are we receive Jesus' alien righteousness, the Spirit of God indwells us. We're born again, and that only happens once, and we cannot lose it. However, as Christians, we can act as functional atheists, meaning that we are not trusting the Lord on a day-by-day basis, depending on the circumstances that come into our lives. The Bible teaches us how to dismantle our self-sufficiency, learning how to trust God. Lord, I believe Do you remember hearing that in Mark chapter 9, verse 24? And as the gentleman continued to talk to Jesus, he said, help my unbelief. Now, this is the idea that I'm speaking of as far as functional atheism. Perhaps you are a Christian. I hope so. That means that you are born again and you believe in God. You not only believe in God, but you have trusted him for your salvation. But as mentioned, we can go along in life, and depending on what is happening on any particular day, we can struggle with unbelief or functional atheism. The full sentence is, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I have found myself in this place often. I believe the Lord. I trusted the Lord in my salvation in 1984. But I am not fully mature. I am not completely Christ-like. I do not live in a glorified body. And so there are some days regarding my progressive sanctification to where my belief needs a, a boost. And I hope that through this webinar that you will find that help as well so that we can strengthen one another in our full belief, not only in salvation, but also in our sanctification. This is a problem that Paul talked about in Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You see it here on the screen. He was teaching the Corinthians about what was going on in his life, him and his team. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. 
We don't want you to be ignorant of the suffering that we were going through. There was a sovereign design in our suffering. God was doing something, Paul went on to say, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, as you see here on the screen, I do have a few words highlighted. One is unaware. Sometimes we can be unaware of what God is doing in our lives. Well, Paul was clued in, and he wanted to make sure that his his friends in Corinth were not unaware of what God was doing. And he tells them that he was burdened beyond his strength. Now, that is a key phrase here. Sometimes God will put us in places that will push us beyond our ability to extricate ourselves from the problems that we are in. Paul went on to say, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And then we see the divine conjunction, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Sometimes the Lord will permit suffering in our life to decouple us from our own strength, from our self-reliance, from our ability. And we don't want to be unaware of the operations of God either. That is to make us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. As we move through the Corinthian letter, we will come to 2 Corinthians 4. Seven, You see it here on the screen. Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, I've highlighted, highlighted a few words on inside this verse here. Treasure and clay. You see the juxtaposition, which is also the antithesis. We are the clay meaning that we are weak, we are vulnerable, we are fragile, we are recyclable. Clay also speaks to our Adamic nature. Adam was made from the dust of the earth. He was a red man. He was a dirt man. And so he is a clay man, as you and I are as well. God will put the treasure only in clay pots. And so that is the problem. The problem is we don't want to be clay pots. We want to be gold-plated, diamond-studded pots or containers that you put the treasure in. But if the treasure was in that kind of pot, we would not be able to discern or others would not be able to discern where the surpassing power comes from. Does it come from that gold-plated box? Well, I'm not sure. But when you put the treasure in a jar of clay, then there is no question that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Therefore, we can apply this passage in this way. Sometimes God will burden us beyond our strength to where we despair of life itself, as Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. God is doing that to teach us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. Our problem is we don't want to be clay pots. We don't want to be fragile, vulnerable, weak, transparent, sometimes even honest. We want to be strong, powerful, and mighty. Well, God will not compete with us, and if that is the decision that we choose, sometimes God will let us go our own way and our own strength, but ultimately that will fold up on us, it will collapse, it will implode, and 
the hope is is that we will get to that place where we recognize that weakness is strength, that foolishness is wisdom. And then as we move along in 2 Corinthians, we come to chapter 12. This is a longer passage, and this is where Paul was talking about his proclivity to be prideful. He had a propensity to be proud, and because of that, as he says here in verse number 7 of chapter 12, to keep me from becoming conceited, to becoming a gold-plated, diamond-studded pot. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. God was going to humble me, bring me back to a clay pot. He was burdening, burdening me beyond my strength. I cannot fix this. He said, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul didn't like being a clay pot. He didn't like being burdened beyond his strength, so he pleaded three times with the Lord that it should leave me. But God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And this is what I've been saying here in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 about the jars of clay, and of course in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. So Paul recalibrated his mind according to the gospel and said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, and so we have to get out of the way. Now, God loves us just that much, that he will help us to get out of the way, that he will burden us beyond our strength, till we assume the position of a jar of clay. Paul says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And then in the last part of this section, Paul gives what I believe to be the secret to life, honestly. In a very short sentence, he says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that is the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. This is what we see as Christ hanging on a cross. It appears to be weakness, but it was strength. It appeared to be foolishness, but it was the wisdom of God. And so as we emulate Christ in the gospel, we have to assume the position of weakness. And in this weakness, God's power is perfected. Well, what we're talking about here is dismantling self-reliance and overcoming unbelief. And so as we look at these three passages of Scripture, I want you to notice the juxtaposition and the antithesis. In chapter number one of 2 Corinthians, as you saw, Paul says that he was burdened beyond his strength. That was teaching us to rely on God who raises the dead. Thus the juxtaposition and the antithesis is burden beyond and resurrection power. There, there's the polarization, and that is the process. And then in chapter 4, we're jars of clay. Here's the juxtaposition, surpassing power. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. And so as you see on the screen here, we're burdened beyond so we can experience resurrection power. We're jars of clay so we can have surpassing power. When I am weak, then I am strong. Now this sounds good in theory, but 
burden beyond being jars of clay and being weak. Again, that is our kryptonite. And so we don't want to be there. And God, in his mercy and his love, deep affection for us, he will help us to dismantle our self-reliance. And so I want to sketch this process out. And the remainder of this presentation will be in three parts. Part number one, I'm going to talk about our worship structure and what it means to be self-reliant. This is the put-off aspect of dismantling self-reliance. Part number two, I will talk about what we need to put on. And then part number three, I will give you some application questions that I trust that will lead to conversations for transformation. Now, in order to be self-reliant, and again, I'm going to describe here our worship structure. Worship is a question that you never ask anyone or you don't have to ask someone. Are you worshiping? Everybody is wired to worship. We're made in the image of God, and we worship something. Since Genesis 3, verse number 6, we have options. used to be that we worshiped only God, God alone. But now we can worship other things. And basically what we're going to worship is either God or worship ourselves, to put it into big general categories. And so everybody has a worship structure. And the self-reliant worship structure, well, it's going to look like what I'm going to put on the screen here. Now, the first thing that we have to remember is that self-reliance is delusional. Nobody is self-reliant. The only way that you can possibly deceive yourself into being self-reliant is to whittle your world down into something that you can manage. Now, you can be self-reliant if you can live inside this box here that you see here on the screen. Now, it's an illusion. It's a mirage in the desert. To put it within a psychological framework, it is delusional to think that you're self-reliant or self-sufficient. Only God is self-sufficient. However, because we have a hard time trusting God, rather either in a salvific sense or in our sanctification, what we tend to do is to shrink our world down to something that we can manage, and we can be absolute kings in our universe, in our whittled-down, manageable, highly controlled universe. We can be God for a day, little G-O-D. But what will happen, and we realize this, that God will, in his mercy, he will start pushing us outside of our self-constructed universes. And when God does that, as we step outside of that box, it, it feels like death to self, and it should be. And that is what that's what Paul was teaching us, that we want to be burdened beyond our strength. And so as you look at the screen here, you see us living in our self-reliant world, and then God is pushing us outside of our world because he wants us not only to die to ourselves, but he wants us to understand uh, that there are much greater things that can happen with us, through us, in us, when we're not relying on ourselves. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we are far too easily pleased. We had rather spend our days making mud pies in a mud puddle when God is offering us a day at the beach. But no, we want to live inside our box. One of the illustrations of this is in Matthew 14, where uh, Peter is walking on the water. And you could say that the box here, this dark blue box that you see on the screen, uh, that's Peter's boat. 
And so Peter is standing in the boat. Now it's win-win for him. He's God of his universe. But Christ comes walking on the water and says, hey, you want to take a walk on the wild side? Do you want to experience something that nobody else has ever experienced in the world outside me? I'm walking on the water. And you can too. Well, that was death to self. Now, too often we knock Peter for uh, walking on the water and sinking and all that happened on that dark and stormy night. But the truth is, it was profound. Peter stepped out in faith. Now, of course, he began to sink, and immediately Jesus reached down and lifted him up. And when they got back on the boat, that was the rebuke. Why didn't you trust me? Oh, you of little faith. And this is what God is doing in our lives. We're far easily contented to stay on our boats or making mud pies in a mud puddle, but God is wanting us to walk on water, to do the spectacular, and we can do that once we get beyond our strength, to where we are despairing of life itself. And I imagine that's what was going on in Peter's life as he was stepping out of that boat. I can only imagine. And so what we want to do is to identify what is going on underneath the surface of an individual's life, what is happening in the self-reliant heart. And so what I will do here is I will walk through some of the idols of the heart, the things that manage the self-reliant person. If If you want to help them, you will have to get underneath the surface of their lives. You will have to identify each idol that is operational underneath them. Now, whether this applies to you or someone that you're discipling, I'm going to sketch out a schematic and it would benefit you tremendously if you memorize this, if you teach this. What you'll find is that every person that you teach this to, and you'll have this experience as we go through this, it's like, wow, this applies to me too. Yeah, that's because we're born in Adam, and Adam chose to rely on himself in Genesis 3, 6, and as Adamic creatures, we have the same propensity as well. And so if you want to help them, you will have to get underneath the surface of their lives, start identifying this worship structure to teach them what to put off. And so as we go underneath the surface, the first idol that you're going to run into outside of self-reliance, the primary idol that we're talking about, will be the idol of control. Now, the reason that the individual wants to be in control is because they want to manage their world. It is quite logical, as you will see. They want to control their world. Sometimes we use the language of control freaks. That sounds a bit harsh to me, but I understand what they're trying to say. They don't want to be out of control, and we don't. And so we figure out what we can manage. Now, you will find that most people will, the tendency will be to operate within their strength. The lady working as an administrator and someone comes along and says she's omnicompetent. She is such a self-reliant person. That sounds like a compliment, but in reality, it's probably not. And again, the only way that she can be self-reliant on the work floor is for her to manage or to be operating within her strength. 
to work within her abilities. Self-reliant people will always gravitate toward their strengths. As Oswald Chambers says, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. And so what you will find with a self-reliant person is a profoundly weak person, but above ground, they seem to be self-reliant, omnicompetent, can do all things. Well, of course they can, as long as they're inside of their little self-contained delusional box. And so control would be the first idol that they will be struggling with. Now, underneath that, you will find the idol of comfort, and it works this way. I want to be comforted. Therefore, I have to find out uh, what I can control, because if I can manage my world, I will experience comfort. And as you get underneath comfort, you will find fear. I am afraid. I feel a little bit out of control. And so I find my strength. Now I'm working within my own abilities. That makes me comfortable. And now I can control things. Now I'm happy. But as you can see, this person is getting weaker and weaker the closer that you get down to their heart. Now, underneath the fear that you will find shame. Now, what shame is, it is an internal awkwardness in our souls to where we're not quite comfortable in our own skin. Now, everybody is this way from child up. We we have this internal awkwardness, this fear of man, this sense of shame. Uh, we will tend to, what we'll tend to do is to create a dichotomy of ourselves. We will create a personification of ourselves, a person that we present in the public spaces, and we will hide behind our fig leaves, the uncomfortableness that we experience internally. And we hope that people will find that our representative, our PR person, the individual that we carefully edit uh, to be ourselves, that we present ourselves out in the public space. We hope that people will find that person more palatable, more acceptable than the person that we realize ourselves to be. And so many people live in a stark contrast. They know who they are internally, and they don't like that person, or they're not perfectly comfortable in as that person, and so they present themselves as somebody else. That is what shame is, and that is what will tempt a person to build a self-reliant construct. And so people will look at the self-reliant construct and think, you are amazing. And that is exactly what we want to hear. You are beautiful. And so we put our pictures on social media, the best presentation of ourselves. And you, as you follow the comment string underneath, oh, you're gorgeous. Oh, you're so beautiful. Wow, what a lovely family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is the personification. Well, they don't live with you. They see a 2D version of you, but we know the real truth. And if we're not careful, that dichotomy that we create, the gap between reality, who we actually are, and the person that we present ourselves to be, and all of our strengths, whatever our strengths may be. It could be our athletic prowess. It could be our intellect. It could be our beauty. It could be our ability to communicate. It could be the riches that we have. Whatever these things are that we project in, out into the public space, if we're not careful, that dichotomy, the gap will grow, and that is a dangerous place to be. But shame is that internal awkwardness of the soul. We're not quite comfortable in our own skin. And, of course, underneath that shame is the guilt that we experience, which makes what Paul said 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 8 and 9, that you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guilt and shame, they tend to work together. They are cohorts, uh, so to speak where we can feel these low levels of of guilt in our lives. And this is part of what it means to be an Adam. And of course, feeling guilty, which is conviction actually, feeling conviction that there's something wrong with us should drive us to God. Unfortunately, with too many people, it doesn't drive them to the Lord, capital G-O-D, it drives us to lowercase G-O-D, and we try to overcome these things that are underneath the surface of our lives uh, through our own self-reliance so that we can feel better about ourselves as we present ourselves to the world. Well, what we're talking about here is soul noise. You have a lot of people with a lot of soul noise in their lives. And so you ought to help them to see that and to identify. Now, ultimately, the culprit that's operational underneath uh, underneath the surface, when you get to the bottom of it all, what is going on in their heart is unbelief. Now, as mentioned earlier, this might not be talking about sal- salvation. This is not a salvific problem. But this is a problem in a person's progressive sanctification. What happens is, is that we bring our former manner of life, we bring all of these idols here into our salvation experience. And so what we want to do is not only trust God in our salvation, but we want to continue to mature in Christ so that, as we say, as the gentleman said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, as we identify these idols of the heart and begin to put them off, well, we can truly believe, not only in a salvific sense, but also in our sanctification. Now, what will happen is that the Lord will come along and he'll see this worship structure. And of course, it is not only delusional, but it is ungodly. It is breaking the very first commandment that we have put another God up. We have erected a God that is antagonistic and hostile to Jehovah. And so God, because of his mercy and his love for us, he will begin to blow on this thing and it will start teetering back and forth and we'll find our lives collapsing or falling apart. Or as Paul would say, I was burdened beyond my strength. Now, when that happens, we have, we have an opportunity to react. Now, Unfortunately, the way we react is uh, not godly. I want to walk through just a quick illustration of this. I want to present what I just showed to you. And and basically, it's the same thing. And so I will go through this quickly so that you can see it on the screen. But the reason I want to show this to you is because every person has a unique life above ground. Nobody's the same above ground. You have a new, unique life, a unique story, a unique narrative. But again, as you counsel people, as you disciple people, you will see this diagnostic operational in every single person's heart. I've never met a person. I've never talked to anyone uh, going through this process where it did not relate to them. Now, what I want you to see on the screen here is that actually the diagnostic that I'm drawing here is a diagnostic of Adam. This is exactly what Adam struggled with. Now, he had a unique life that was different from Eve, different from Seth, different from Cain. Again, we're all different. 
But where we're the same and where primary counseling needs to happen is underneath the surface of our unique lives. And when you do that, you'll find a self-reliant worship structure. Adam chose to rely on himself, meaning he was controlling his world. He sought comfort through fig leaves, through running, through blaming, because he was afraid. He experienced a sense of shame. He was guilty before God, and there was a battle between faith and unfaith. And so again, having this quick diagnostic uh, in your mind, uh, it will help you as you lead people through skilled question asking as you guide them, and they will begin to see this as well. And so then you want to jump back to the other screen here, and you want to help them as their world begins to dismantle. And for many people, they will not react appropriately and properly to the dismantling that God is bringing into their lives. In fact, there will be three common reactions. Now, there's more than that, but I just want to walk through three. When God begins to topple our worship structure, the most common response is the person will respond in anger. They will be angry because their world has fallen apart. Now, anger is a manipulative tactic of the insecure soul who wants to regain control of their universe. And so they will use anger as a manip manipulative tactic because they are afraid. That's the insecure soul. They're falling out of control. They cannot manage their lives. And if at all possible, anger will be the first tool that they will pull from their toolbox. And if they can manipulate their world, if they can get everyone to stand down and to obey and to take a step back and, and so that they can be in control again, then, then they're happy. Well, they're not happy. They have a lot of soul noise, but they will choose again, making mud pies in a mud puddle because they really don't believe that they can have a day at the beach. And so they use anger as a way to keep their world in order. Now, another response would be blame. See, when this thing falls out on the ground and there's blocks and dust and and all kinds of debris uh, on the ground from this collapsed worship structure, they have to explain themselves why their world fell apart. Now, in too many cases, rather than saying that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. Paul had a very mature response as to why his world was falling apart. He did not blame, but that is our temptation. And then the other danger here, the reaction, is that we can, be, we can harden our conscience. We can, we can initially become dull as we rationalize our life, justify our life, blame our situation on another person. What will happen, our consciences, are, every conscience is malleable, and our conscience will begin to go dull. If we continue persisting in our excuses, our conscience can become hard, and then we're flying blind. We're no longer aware. We have lost all self-awareness as to what is going on in our lives. We don't have Paul's perspective in 2 Corinthians. One, we have a hard conscience as we continue to blame and we're angry as this soul noise from the debris that's laying out all over the ground as we try to reconstruct our worship structure. Well, ultimately, the problem with self-reliance above the surface of, the, of our lives is unbelief. 
for the Christian is functional atheism. Words like faith, hope, trust, belief, confidence, they're all synonyms to communicate basically the same thing. It is a person who is unwilling to trust God, choosing to rely on themselves. Therefore, this individual has a deeply rooted theological problem. And that is the question that you have to ask. If the person continues to rely on themselves over and over and over and over again, then the most obvious question that you would want to ask them is, what is your problem with God? Now, that is not how you would phrase it, because that could uh, put them out. They could become angry. Uh, They probably would not even understand the question. they more than likely would say, oh, I trust God, I am a Christian, and they will miss what you're saying. So you want to be careful. You want to build that runway to them to help them to see what they are actually doing. But you already know what's going on. You will have to determine what is the best way to communicate this to them. I would not recommend that you just ask them outright, what is your problem with God? But ultimately, they do have a problem with God because there's two choices between uh, with them. They can either rely on themselves or rely on the Lord. And according to this diagnostic, they are not relying on the Lord. Therefore, there is a reason they're not trusting God, and you want to explore those reasons. Now, there's only three. There's only three reasons that a person would choose to rely on themselves and not trust God. Reason number one is they're angry. You cannot be angry at God and trust God at the same time. If Peter was standing on that boat and said, Jesus, I am angry with you, well, then he's not going to get off the boat and trust him. It just doesn't work that way. It could be that he is afraid. If Peter was on that boat and if he was afraid, then he's going to stay on the boat, choosing to make mud pies on his boat, if I can mix my metaphors here. The afraid problem is similar to what we see in the Chronicles of Narnia. This is where uh, Lucy and um, Susie, I guess it was, was having this conversation with the beavers, and they were asking if Aslan was safe. And Mrs. Beaver said, of course, he's not safe, but he is good. And that is the tension that we have with God, because at our gut level, we know that God is not safe. I mean, just a casual reading through the Old Testament. God is not a safe God. As he asked Adam, uh, as he asked Abraham to put uh, a stake, uh, to put a knife in his son's chest. As he asked Moses to go live on the backside of the desert for 40 years. As he asked the three Hebrew boys, basically, uh, to go into the fire. And the story with Esther and Mordecai. Uh, Esther was very much afraid about going in front of the king. And on and on and on, uh, we see that. And we've had that experience in our own lives. God will call us to do what we cannot do with the ability that we have. This is exactly what Paul was saying in Second Corinthians, that we can't do this. God had pushed us beyond our strength. God is not safe in the context in which C.S. Lewis was saying it in the Chronicles of Narnia. Going back to anger, this is another one of those statements that you want to be careful with, similar to with what is your problem with God. Uh, if you say something like you're angry with God, most people would uh, probably be, uh, they, they would not 
typically understand what you're saying and probably be put out by the statement. So again, you want to be careful about this part of helping them to work through what they're struggling with. You want to be very careful. I would use other words instead of anger, honestly. I would use words like, for example, ongoing disappointment in a person's life. You see, we're sovereignists. Uh, we believe in the sovereignty of God. Thus, God is the author of our story. We are living in His story, not our story. God is writing the narrative of our lives. We are actors in a play, uh, to put it in that metaphor. And what you'll find is that the person who is ongoing disappointment, I'm not talking about a momentary bout of disappointment as something happens in your life and you're disappointed by it. That is very normal. But I'm talking about a person who is characterized by disappointment. Well, that is a form of anger. That's a manifestation of anger. A person who lives in ongoing disappointment is saying, I don't like the story that I'm living in. Well, what are they really saying? I don't like God. I'm angry at God for the story that I'm living in. And so, again, use synonyms to help people to see what they need to see. And sometimes you can lighten up the synonym instead of saying anger. Uh, you can begin to identify discontentment. And, again, we're talking about characterizations or patterns, not these momentary bouts of discontentment or disappointment or frustration that we might have. But the bitter soul, the person who is characterized this way, I would say that there are many Christians who have a low-level anger with God. It's a low-level disappointment with God, that they live disappointed lives. And you hardly know it because, again, they present themselves in the public space as self-reliant. There's a dichotomy between who they really are and who they present themselves to be. But you'll find it there in many, many believers' lives. Ultimately, they're angry at God. They're afraid of God. Or uh, they are, and I'm just to use all A's here, agnostic, uh, meaning that they're not fully sure or not fully aware of God. Uh, they don't have all the knowledge that they uh, need to have. There is ignorance in play here. And again, I would not call them ignorant, uh, but there's things that they don't know about God. Now, that's the way we all are. Before we were saved, we didn't know God. And then when we became saved, when God saved us, uh, we were babies in Christ. And so we're growing in our knowledge of God. And so uh, we all have a lack of awareness is what I'm talking about here. But these are the three faith killers I'm not aware of any other. And what you will find uh, that most of, most of the time, all three of these will be in play in someone's life. There may be low-level frustration in their lives, uh, low-level fear that they haven't talked about, and, of course, uh, not having the full knowledge of, of what God, who God is and what God is doing in our lives. You'll find all three of these in play, but what it will do will circumvent. It will truncate our faith. I call these faith killers. Now, there's other secondary faith killers. I'll talk about those in just a moment. But what we want to do is we want to lead them to the ultimate source, the solution to the problem, which is the gospel. This is the only right answer. We want to help them to recalibrate their minds according to the gospel. The gospel is the person and work of Christ. He is the good news. A synonym for the gospel is Christ. The gospel has always existed in eternity past, eternity future. The gospel came to earth, lived, died on a cross, 
rose from the grave, ascended. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He must recalibrate our minds, and so we want to help them to understand the gospel. And one aspect of the gospel is God is good. God is good as perceived through the person and work of Christ. We need to understand that God is good. Now, there is a whole lot more that we need to understand, theologically speaking. I am only, the gospel is like a multifaceted diamond, and I'm only speaking to one facet of that diamond, but we want to make sure that they understand that God is good. This is what he did on the cross, that he died for your sins, that you are completely free for freedom. God has set us free. Your past, present, and future sins are all forgiven. You will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will not pay for your sin. You have an alien righteousness. You you don't have to lean into your own righteousness. And you have supernatural power because you are now an overcomer through God who lives in you. And on and on and on. And I am bringing all of that down into one word and saying, God is good. And so you want to help them to understand what the gospel is and all of the ramifications of the gospel. And so let's work back out and talk about what they need to put on. You've seen to put off in the diagnostic of the worship structure, and now we're going to repaint the picture. And so let's start with the gospel rather than starting with self-reliance, and we'll go back around. Well, instead of anger toward God or just angry or ongoing disappointment, The person who is really calibrated by the gospel is a grateful person. They have gratitude. It's not that they're ignoring their problems. They're not. But they have a transcending power that helps them to overcome their problems, and you'll see a general characterization of gratitude in their life. Now, this is what you want to help them to grow into, to mature into. Rather than being afraid, they will have a God-centered confidence. They will be courageous people. And rather than being ignorant or unaware, or I use the word agnostic, they will be aware They will be growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, that will help them to mature in their theology. And that is the source material. We want to grow theologically, but first we have to be dialed in to the gospel. And as the gospel reorients our thinking, it begins to change our attitude. It matures our relationship with God. Our deepening theological understanding uh, continues to mature as well. And now we can operate in all of the synonyms of faith, hope, trust, belief, and confidence, even to the point to where we can become believing believers. Now, isn't that a fantastic place to be, where I believe God in my salvation, and each day, each step I take, I am walking in faith. Now, we can continue to do that, but God will bring opportunities in our lives to test us on these points. And of course, you know that very well, but these are merely opportunities to remind ourselves to be reoriented or recalibrated by the gospel so that we're operating in gratitude and courage and ongoing awareness. Our theological depth is strengthening and we are believing believers to where we would say, Lord, I believe. Now, what that will do, uh, it will change our reactions to our circumstances. Instead of, bl- instead of anger, 
what we will do is that we will be humbled. The heat in our lives will not make us proud, but it will humble us. We will have a, an awareness that God is working in our lives. And rather than responding in self-righteous, elevated anger to explain what is going on in our lives, we're humble. We recognize that God is working. God is working a plan. I don't understand all of it at this point, but that is the humble heart. And of course, the humble heart is the grace-empowered heart. And with that humility comes power. This is what James was saying in 4.6. God opposes the proud, that angry person who's reacting to their world falling apart. But God gives grace to the humble person who is reacting in humility as things are changing in their lives. Rather than blaming... This person has insight. The Spirit of God gives them wisdom to be able to, to understand what is going on in their lives and to see it through a different lens. Their presupposition now is a gospel lens, and of course that creates the humility. That gives them wisdom and, of course, clarity. Rather than the malleable conscience that is dulling to hardening now their conscience is pitch perfect. Their conscience, their inner voice, and the Word of God, they're on the same page. They're saying the same thing. Completely in tune, there is a harmony happening between the individual's inner voice and God's Word. Therefore, they have 2020 vision. And so humility, wisdom, and clarity will be some of the characteristics that you will see with the believing believer, but it gets better than that. The guilt that they experience, they recognize that they are free, and they live in that freedom. And then the shame that they experience, they have contentment, or they have peace, shalom of the soul. Out of the believer's heart, there is a freedom that they experience. They can do a happy dance because they are contented. They have peace in their heart. They're no longer experiencing that internal awkwardness of the soul, the shame I was talking about, or it is mitigating. It is shrinking by the day. And instead of living in fear, they have hope. Hope is a synonym for Confidence, hope is a synonym for belief and trust. Christians who lose hope, and you'll see that a lot, it is a big deal. When things are not going the way that they should, they're afraid. They're losing hope. It's hopelessness. And you'll find that with a lot of people. And the person is, is hopeless. They don't know how to rely on themselves. They're trying to rely on themselves, but they can't. And so they lost hope. Hopelessness in that context is not a bad thing because God is deconstructing the previous diagnostic on the other slide and as they reorient their minds to the gospel, recognizing that God is good, and here's the, the 20 reasons why, the 20-plus reasons why. And then their heart begins to change. They begin to grow in gratitude and courage, awareness, 
They begin to understand God more deeply and broadly. They become believing believers operating in humility, wisdom, and clarity, living in the freedom that God has given us through Christ. Peace comes over their soul. They experience hope. And instead of seeking worldly comforts, they're living in the pleasure of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, we can experience the pleasure of God as well as we trust him, as we continue to do his will. And rather than trying to control our universe, we're trying to manage everything, we're discerning. We can make proper decisions, right decisions, sometimes even counterintuitive decisions because it's counter to the natural man. But we're walking in the spirit now, empowered by God, calibrated by the gospel, And when Paul got to this place, as he tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now I'm God-reliant. It is a God-sufficiency. I am strengthened by God rather than living in my own strength, my own power, my own instincts. You see, there's no box now. You're not living within a confined box to where you can be king or God for a day. No, there is, there are, there's an unlimitedness to our lives now. We can, we can be full. We can be empty. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so this is the put on. This is how we want to walk them through to help them to see both the, the worship structure that is self-reliant and the worship structure that is in tune with God. Let's look at the big pieces just to walk through it quickly to what God's sufficiency looks like. It always begins with the gospel. The person who is maturing in the person and work of Christ, the gospel, they're growing in gospel awareness. Well, you will find gratitude In fact, you can measure their understanding and application of the gospel by the gratitude that comes from their lips, comes from their heart. They will also be growing in confidence or courage. And of course, they will be growing in knowledge and awareness, and that will give them a deeper understanding of the Lord, and that will impact their heart to where they're growing in belief as a Christian, pertaining to their sanctification. And of course, out of that, they will be operating always in humility. And then out of that humility, they will be changing on a daily basis. I die daily. The Bible word here is repentance. They will they will continue to be repenting. And that is what the Christian life is. It is repentance at salvation and daily repentance. We are repentant and ongoing repenting throughout our lives. And as we are continuing to transform through repentance, we will find that we can do all things through him who strengthens us. And here's the circularity of this process, which brings us back to the gospel. And again, you go around and around. But these are the big pieces that you see here on the screen. And this is a finely tuned worship structure of the person who is truly gospel-centered. This is the text that Paul was uh, that I referred to earlier in Philippians 4. But I do want to give a context by talking about the first two verses that precede verse 13 that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation. Now think about that. Paul has been educated. He has learned. He has been tutored by God that whatever situation, it doesn't matter the situation, a thorn in the flesh or a thorn not in the flesh, it doesn't matter. I have learned in every situation to be content. Now that is a God-reliant person there. 
I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. He's creating these polar points, these anchor points that are as far apart as they can possibly be. This is what he means by whatever situation. It doesn't matter what the situation is. I can be low. I can be high. In, in any and every circumstance, synonym to whatever situation, I have learned, he's saying it again, God's my tutor, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. See, the all things that Paul was saying in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The all things means whatever situation, every circumstance. I can be brought low. I can abound. I can face plenty. I can play, uh, uh, face hunger, abundance, need. That's the all things that he was talking about. And so Paul was saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, meaning it is not I can do all things through me who strengthens me. That is the self-reliant construct. And, of course, that person cannot do that. They can only do that in a delusional way, by relying on themselves, by whittling their world down to a manageable piece, a manageable construct. But what we want to do is to blow the doors off of our box. We want to deconstruct our box, and we want to, we want to enjoy a day at the beach. We want to do all things through him who strengthens us. Going back to what Paul was saying in 189 of 2 Corinthians, it'll make more sense now. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers. We were burdened beyond our strength. In fact, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But God was making us to rely not on ourselves, but on him who raises the dead. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And so this is the worship structure, and the big question is, well, how can I change? How can I deconstruct my self-reliant worship structure and, and build a God-sufficient one? Well, this is the third part of the presentation here, and so I, I want to give you some application questions that are centered on these three words. There's other ways to do this, but this is an excellent way. And so I want you to think about your gratitude, your courage, and your awareness. And I have some questions that I want to ask you about that. Are you an encourager? Now, you will find that all the questions that I'm going to ask you, there's about 15 of them or so. All of these questions are basically close-ended questions, and so I want you to not make them close-ended. I want you to explain each one. Are you an encourager? Do you encourage yourself? Are you encouraged as a pattern? Are you characterized as encouraged? David encouraged himself in the Lord. Do you thank God for all things, as Paul told the, the church at Thessalonica? Are you a great grateful person as a pattern? And so I would encourage you to screenshot these questions and Talk to them with your spouse if you're married, with a friend, with your small group, a mentor, someone that you appreciate who has the courage and the competence to speak into your life and that you work through these questions and you're trying to understand and diagnose your gratitude. Are you a grateful person. Now, if you're not characterized as a grateful person, then there needs to be a gospel realignment. There is something about the gospel that has not yet grabbed your heart and is not yet controlling your heart. The second is courage. Rather than living in fear and timidity, shame, 
hopelessness. Here are some questions about courage. Are you self-protective? Are you characterized as anxious? Are you at peace? Are others at peace around you? We export peace to others, by the way. We export who we are to others. Some people export chaos. Some people export fear. Uh, have you been a- around a person and you just get uncomfortable around them because they're so insecure or they're so out of sorts they can export that to you? What tempts you to worry? So again, if you want to screenshot or stop the video, uh, you can write these questions down and again, work, work with somebody through these questions. And then awareness. Do you take faith-filled risk? Now, I modified risk with faith-filled, meaning you don't jump off a cliff, uh, but you can get out of a boat and walk on water. Uh, These are faith-filled risks. These are wise risks that you take. Do you believe that God is for you? If God is for you, who can be against you? Are you problem-centered or God-centered? Do you have a big God worldview? And then finally, are you characterized as hopeful? So I've asked you 15 questions about um, awareness and about courage and about gratitude. And then I'll ask a couple of bonus questions. Three, are you more aware of your sin or God's favor on your life? Uh, This is an important question. I would love for you to explain your answer. Also, and why is this question significant? Number two, are you more aware of others' sin or God's ability to change them? We're talking about being sin-centered versus God-centered here. And then finally, number three, do your friends assist or hinder you from trusting God? What kind of companions do you have? Do you have good companions? Or do you have those that applaud you all the time and make you feel great about your self-reliance? Or do you have friends who love you so much that will not only encourage you, but they'll also correct you as well? Uh, you, You want friends who practice loyal disagreement. They're loyal to the end. They love you to the end, but they will not rubber stamp you, and they will help you to mature in Christ. And so I talked about faith killers, the primary faith killers that we have addressed, the only three, as I said, as far as primary faith killers. You cannot trust God if you're angry with him. You cannot trust God if you're afraid of him. And you cannot trust God if you don't know him. I call it agnostic. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so obviously a lack of knowledge will kill faith. But there are secondary faith killers, heart attitudes that sabotage our faith. And I want to walk through several of them as I wrap up, and then I will give you the put on. And again, you can screenshot this page, but you'll see here a list of faith killers, secondary faith killers, and also the put on, uh, the counter response to them. So I have negative. The negative person should be faith-filled. Cynicism, rather than being suspicious and cynical, we should be expectant and hopeful. Gossip, rather than talking negative about someone, we should be an encourager. Blaming, we should be forbearing, like perseverance. Justifying my actions, we should be responsible. Deceitful, we should be truthful. Apathy is biblical hate, but apathy, we should be loving. Stubborn, 
stuck in our ways, we should be spontaneous, pneumatic, walking in the spirit, be able to pivot and to flex. Harsh, we should be kind. Hate, we should be love. Soul noise, shalom. And then harden our conscience, our malleable conscience, we should be spirit-filled. Now, each one of these has questions, and again, you want to carefully diagnose yourself, and then, of course, there is an appropriate put on here, and I would encourage you to work through this list here. As you can see, this is a full webinar. There's a lot of information here, and it could take six months uh, to work through all of this, and I would love for you to take that kind of time, teach it to other people, and take as much time as you want to work through it because again there's a lot packed into it. The big idea in this webinar is our most significant problem is self-reliance, also called unbelief. When we choose to rely on ourselves, we are not trusting the Lord. The Bible teaches us how to dismantle our self-sufficiency. That's screen number one, the first worship structure I walked through. And then learning how to trust God. That is the second diagnostic, what to put on our worship structure. And so, again, you can play this back and work through it. And may this big idea, may it be operative in your heart to where you can truly be relying on the Lord. Of course, this is a daily process. We do die daily, and there will be opportunities in our future. Our temptation, our instinct will be to grab hold to our self-reliance when those moments of uncertainty comes into our lives. But again, it's through those opportunities that we want to learn to rely on Him who raises the dead. This is dismantling self-reliance. Before I leave, uh, I do have a few things here before you leave, before we finish here, rather. There's a few things that I would love for you to consider. Please pray for our ministry. Follow us on socials, whatever platform you find us. Share our content. It is mostly free, and I want you to be free to share our resources with others, including this webinar. And then for those of you who are able, we need your financial support. And uh, that is uh, a prayer request of ours that God would continue to move the hearts of a few people that are able to support our ministry, to underwrite it. It's the only way that we can keep our resources free. And so don't fall prey to the bystander effect, thinking that there will be other people that will listen to this webinar and you're just a bystander. Somebody else will do this. I don't have to. If you're able to support us, will you do that? Will you support our ministry? Perhaps you are a local church, pastor, elders, leaders of the church. Would you take us on on a monthly or annual basis? We are cyber missionaries. We go around the world every day sharing the practical message of Christ, and this would be a worthy ministry, I believe, uh, for you as a church to support. Business person, if you could underwrite, and of course, Christians, if you could uh, support our ministry or make a one-time donation, that would be great. For some of you, you may want to become a mastermind student. We have that information at lifeovercoffee.com, and you're welcome to read all about it. The title of this webinar is Dismantling Self-Reliance and Overcoming Unbelief. Thank you so much for participating. My name is Rick Thomas. As always, you can find me in my coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com, where we have conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.